Right now, it's Barry and Shauna Replay from 89.3 Moody Radio. We're super excited to introduce you to our guest in studio this morning. We have Peter Mudabazi, and he is the founder of Now I Am Known. Peter, we're so grateful to have you here this morning with us. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me here. Truly yeah. a joy to be with you. So your bio is fantastic, but it gives away so much of your story, and I don't want to tell your story. I want them to be able to hear your story from you. So tell us a bit about your childhood. What was it like growing up in a village in Uganda? Well, I grew up in a village where life was miserable in every way, shape, form you could imagine. You know, I didn't have a name until when I was two years old. Reasons were because for every 100 children that were born in my village, 60 would die before the age of two. So my mother waited until when I was two. She said, well, he survived. He's a gift given to me by God. So actually my name means a gift given to me by God. Mm. Uh, there wasn't anything to dream about. There wasn't anything to be hopeful it wasn't anything that they told us to dream. You know, it's hard if a mother can't feed you for a day. How does she tell you to dream? I never went to school. I went to fetch water three to four miles every day, twice a day. Never went to school. So it wasn't really any glimpse that I would say there was a future for me. Mm-hmm. And then at the age of four, I began to realize that my father was different from other dads. That he was just mean and abusive and you know, I never had any kind words from, from him. All I had was, Peter, you never mount anything. Peter, you're useless. Peter, your, your dogs are worse than you. Peter, I wish you were never born so I did not have to feed you. So hearing all those words from someone who should love you really left me in some way wishing, not wanting to see the next day. And that was my life from the age of, of four. Uh, poverty was likely to take my life, but also my own father was my own enemy. So for me, I didn't want to dream. I didn't want to really see the next day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the age of 10, I just could not take it anymore. And I ran away. You ran away to where? Where do you go at 10 years old from a village in Uganda? Well, yes, I'd never been 20 miles away from my village. And I thought my dad was going to kill me. So what I thought, I thought maybe if I should die in the hands of someone else would be better in some way. Hmm. So I'd never been 20 miles away and I went to the bus station and I asked, hey, of all these buses, which goes the farthest? And the lady said that one. And I got on that bus and I ran away and I ended up in Kampala, which was 500 kilometers away from my village. And I became a street. That was the only option that I had to be as a little boy. Living on the street for how long did you live on the street? I lived on the street for five years. And how did you survive? I mean, what was, you know, how does a a 10-year-old child survive on the street on their own? Well, as three kids, you know, we we, we found kids who were our same age that understood us because it was easy to protect ourselves because older kids abused us as well. So we managed to just survive by living in the sewer, by uh, stealing food. That's how we did. You know, I would steal potatoes. The other one would steal bananas. Mm. And then at the end of the day, we'd have enough to feed for all of us and and go to places where no one ever wanted to go because it's smelling. Uh, And that's where we hang out and eat Mm. food. And that became our life, you know, day to day, where I didn't dream. Yes, the abuse was worse than at home, but at least these were strangers. These weren't my family. They were abusing us. This wasn't people that we knew. These were strangers. So mm. uh, it, didn't harm, it didn't get to me as much as what my father did towards me and towards my mom uh, as well. Wow. So after five years on the street, how did that come to an end? 
Well, so on the streets of Kampala, you know, as street kids, we used to steal by helping people. It was easier to take food from someone when you're helping them, but they used us as well. So I walked, you know, I saw someone wearing glasses and khakis. I was like, that guy, he must have something to, to eat. So I followed him and, uh, and as he was buying food, I wanted to take food from him. And he said, hey, don't take my food. What's your name? And that really rattled me. You want to know me? Mm. Me, a street kid? Me, a garbage boy? Me, the kid was never told there's hope for me. You want to know my name? But also that scared me as well because for everyone who was kind, he was also abusive at the mm. same time. So kindness didn't mean, oh, things are okay. Sure. Kindness mean run and run mm. and run. So he gave me food and I walked away. Mm-hmm. And then I saw him the next week. And then I saw him the next week. So by the fourth week, I kind of knew what he drives, when he comes in the city, where does he park his car? What kind of things does he buy? Because I knew that day someone gets to know me by my name. And I think that reminded me of my own mother, that I could hear the echoes of my mama's voice saying, Peter, because he called me and he fed me. He never called me names. He never saw me as a stranger. He fed me every time he came and he was kind to me. Uh, so he paid me for one year and a half and that really began to give me a glimpse of maybe I'm human because I had always seen myself I was less of a human mm-hmm. being. You know, that's how we're treated, more like stray animals <laughs> as, as kids on, you know, on the streets of Kampala. But this stranger didn't see that. He didn't see a smelling kid. He didn't see a thief. He didn't see uh, a kid who was hopeless. Yeah. He saw a little boy that he could feed and, and that really helped me not understand that I was anything precious in any way but somehow I was human mm. uh, in a way because most of the time I was treated like a stray animal so did this guy help you get off the street yeah so you know after feeding me for one year and a half he said hey Peter if you had an opportunity to go to school would you love to go to school and I was like me no no school is for humans School is for those who are hopeful. School is for those who have a future. I don't have a future. I'm a street kid. Uh, and, and, and one day he changed the language. He said, if you go to school, there'll be food. There'll be lunch, dinner, and breakfast because it was a boarding school. I was like, okay, I'll go. Today <laughs> I will go. Yeah. So I followed the meal and I went to school uh, because of his kindness. Wow. Peter Mutsubatsi. And he's an international advocate for children who are adopted in foster care. You've come a long way, brother, and you're author of the book, Now I Am Known, How a Street Kid Turned Foster Dad Found Acceptance and True Worth. And your book just came out, right? Yes, it just came out a few weeks a few weeks ago, and it's really been a joy to, to journey and share. And I really wanted people to know my story and how I was able to beat the odds because of, you know, someone's kindness and how far it really took me. And not just me, but my entire family as well. Peter, you've shared some of your story already, how, you know, your dad just was abusive till you were 10 years old and then... You ran away from home, you know, put me on a bus that takes me as far away as possible. And you ended up in Kampala, Uganda, lived on the streets for for five years. And and a guy befriended you and, you know, just shared the love of Jesus with you, took you in, put you in school. It's an amazing story. But, you know, you you've had to deal with all of the pain of growing up in such an environment. And and so how how were you able to forgive your dad? You know, so 
I, I really struggled understanding, you know, God's word because my dad was, you know, Roman Catholic and he was very, you know, he could not go to bed without praying the rosary. And I could not understand how you can be so religious, mm-hmm. but also be so abusive. So for me, I, I didn't want anything to do with that. Um, but when this man took me in, he really... In some way, I, I really struggled uh, as well because I think I had grown up and I wanted to to go home and you know and harm my my dad. That's what I felt like. I this man uh, he needs punishment. Hmm. But before then, in 1994, during the genocide in Rwanda, my dad is from Rwanda and I speak the language, so I was asked to go help and rescue the children. So while I was there, I saw more than you know 2,000 dead bodies in, in a day, and I thought, there's no way I'm going to make it. There's no way. But also I questioned people, like, how could people be so hurtful and harmful and, and, and so callous towards others and how? But then as I was pointing a finger, I thought to myself, wait a minute, but I have the same anger towards my dad, mm. you know, that uh, before I can say or accuse others that I had my own anger towards my dad, that I wanted to harm him. And that's really when I told the driver, like, you know what, I want to I want you to pray for me so I can go to heaven and so I can pray. I can also forgive my dad. And he said, no, you go to church, you work for Compassion International, you believe. I said, no, I look like one. Mm-hmm. I act like one, but I don't know him as my savior because my anger has been holding me back. And and we prayed and and I asked God, if, if you allow me to leave, I'll go back and be an advocate for kids and, and I'd ask for forgiveness for my dad. And that's how I became a believer, you know, because I thought there's no way I can make it in life. Why did you think, you know, I'm not going to make it, I'm going to die when you went to Rwanda? Well, when you're surrounded with, you know, with all the hate and, and seeing, you know, humans treat others like they were no humans, you know, I thought they would kill me as well. So I thought that was the end of my life, you know, so that's why I said, I, I need to go to heaven, you know, mm-hmm. it's going to happen soon. I see, I see, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I need to get right with the Lord. Absolutely. Now, you know, <laughs> your story is, is different from most people's in that most people, you know, you come to know Jesus, you realize how much he's forgiven you. And then you realize, ah, now I got to forgive other people. But yours was the other way around. It was actually your, your recognition of your need to forgive your father that led you to the heart of God. Absolutely. That I knew it was my job, you know, to really ask for forgiveness. And he didn't have to come back and say, Peter, I'm sorry. No, that, that is, that's his job mm. between him and the Lord. My part was to truly ask forgiveness and, and to forgive him as well, because I realized how much I had been forgiven, you know, that I needed to let go uh, of my past. So have you been reunited with your father? Before you get to that, you know, what have you learned why your father was so hateful? Was it because he was hurt so much when he was growing up? I think some of it is culture and some of it, yes, it is that. I think, you know, I come from a culture where men, are, you know, are first class, women second and children third. Okay. That they had a right to do whatever they wanted to mm-hmm. do. You know, that in some way, uh, with that, they also became that I think he, he was hurt. That as a kid, I think that's what he thought. That's how you treat a child. That's how okay. you treat you know, the same abuse that came to me came to my mother as well. So it wasn't just me. It was right. how he treated everyone at home uh, that really made it so difficult. Mm-hmm. So at some point, did you go back to see your your birth mom and dad and talk with them and have some kind of reconciliation? What, what did that look like? 
Well, I had made it and I was, I was in high school now and I wanted my siblings because they were still living at home and I wanted them to see the example, to see that if I can make it as a street kid through the kindness of a stranger, that I was going to be there for them as well. So to not give up, to not really let my dad's abuse in some way take over. For my mother, I think I wanted to bring her the pride of a mom to know that mm. her child was, has survived, not only just survived, but he'd made in life than yeah. where he thought or what anyone thought I would, I would go, that I had gone beyond, that I wanted to give her that pride as a mom, mm-hmm. uh, that her child, her first son mm-hmm. uh, was doing okay. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness, you're doing so much better than okay. <laughs> So, Peter, here you are, a single adult man with foster kids. How did you get into the foster care system? How did you get into taking kids into your home? Well, so when I came to the United States, I really struggled with my faith. The reasons were because I saw how much food was thrown away, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think I began to question God. God, do you love us the same way that I come from a region, a place where most kids died for the lack of beans? And here you love people and so much food is thrown away. Like maybe you love us in different ways. And and I think as I went through that, I also realized that, wait a minute, you know, I've been rescued from the street. I went to university in Uganda. I went to university in England. And that's how I came to the United States. And I began to see my own life. And I think Luke 12, 48 really convicted me to whom much is given, mm. much is required. That I knew he'd given me so much that I needed to do something. And once I knew about false care, I thought, these kids, they will understand me and I would understand them since yeah. I had walked the same journey. But I didn't know they would allow me to be a foster parent. You know, I had traveled over the world. I'd never seen a black person who was adapting. So I thought, maybe I don't qualify, <laughs> you know, and as a male as well. So I walked in the foster care system and I asked the social worker, I said, hey, is there any way I can be a mentor to teenagers? I thought at least they would allow me to do that. Yeah. And the social worker said, hey, have you ever thought of being a foster dad? I was like, I don't think I qualify. And she said, why? I said, I'm single. She's like, no, you can be and that day I signed up to leave Luke 1248 to be accountable that I had been given so much you know having an empty house when I knew there are kids in my neighborhood that needed a place to be just didn't seem right you know but also I think for me this man who rescued me really showed me Mm -hmm. you know that I was unloved unwanted but somehow he did that for me he loved me he took me in and he really led me to know Christ my Lord and Savior but now that was my time to do the same for other kids you know for other families so I became a foster dad you know so I've had 27 Uh, I started in Oklahoma now I live in in North Carolina and I've adapted one and I'm in the process of adapting the other three. Oh my in, goodness. Yes, because I realized just the need, you know, there's, there's almost a million kids in the United States that are looking for a place to call home, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I could not look the other way that I really wanted to influence, be part of changing uh, kids' lives because someone did that for me first. Yeah, that's awesome. Tell me a little bit more about doing this as a single dad. I mean, it's all on you. What about like things like this? Like when you're traveling today, you've got five kids at home. Yes. <laughs> Who's got the kiddos? Well, when I became a foster, foster parent, I realized that, you know, I come from a culture where I was told, man, you go work and bring money. You know, uh, But then, you know, the man who rescued me, I saw how he cared for his kids, mm-hmm. how he sat with them and taught them their homework, how he really played with them. And I said, man, if I ever become a dad, I want to be that dad who's involved, yeah. but I can be there for for kids, but also the moms in my life. They really helped me 
to nurture others and how mm-hmm. to be kind and how to love un- unconditionally. And so uh, it's been awesome to be a, a single dad. And yes, it's, sometimes it's hard to go to the grocery store when you just need milk yeah. because I have to take my entire kids, especially <laughs> the little ones, with me. Uh, but it's truly been a joy to truly be a dad, yeah. to truly step up and say, I'm not going to look the other way, but I'm going to step up and be there for these little ones. Mm. And it's truly been a joy. I've had 28. None of them have ever said, hey, I wish we had a mom. They mm. all wanted a dad. Mm. And I am that dad. And wow. if you're a dad out there and thinking, man, can I make a difference? Well, yes, you can. Uh, and it's not just about me. I think they're changing my life as well. Mm. Peter Mudabasi and his book is called Now I Am Known. And I want to ask you about your website here in just a second, but you, you have a, you're a black man, you have a white adopted son, and you've actually had people call you into the police because they've seen a black man with a white kid, right? Correct. Yes. How does that feel? Eight times. You know, eight times. Eight you know, times? Yes. We go to the grocery store and all of a sudden you see a cop showing up. And, and I think I've learned to, to really not let that distract my, my calling. My calling is to be a foster dad. Yes, all my kids are white, you know, even the little ones. Uh, and I love doing so. My kids see me as a dad. And, mm-hmm. and sometimes the, the distraction outside might take your dream away that I didn't want them to distract me. I politely always carry the paperwork, you know, the, everywhere mm-hmm. I go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've, I've also shared with my kids that I really get to really help them understand the differences on how people see us, you know, uh, and the attitude people have. Uh, but saying God loves us and we are family, you know, mm-hmm. uh, we don't match for sure. Uh, but yeah, God has put us together uh, as a family. And that's my calling. I'm not going to let the distraction in some way mm-hmm. uh, get in the way uh, of being uh, a dad. I know November is National Adoption Month and that adoption and foster care is so dear to your heart. What do you want to say to the listeners here in West Michigan before you head out this morning? Well, you know, I come from a country where we say it takes a village to raise a child. And it truly takes a village. Even here in the United States, it takes a village. Um, I know we are not all called to be false parents, but we can all do something small, you know, in your own ways. Can you mow the yard? Can you go mow yard? the yard for mm-hmm. a foster parent you know can you show up with a meal sometimes I'm a single dad and one meal a week would mean the world to me mm-hmm. you know we have teenagers you know do you play video games come and pick my kids and take them for a video game because you are the role model that they really get to see you know visit our charities that truly take care of our kids Thanksgiving is coming it's the mm-hmm. hardest holiday for our kids because they are not with their families and that they struggle to understand where's mom, when is mm-hmm. dad, when everyone of us are saying it's Thanksgiving with family. Call on them, check on them uh, and see what they are doing. Don't don't call me to ask me something, but show up at, at the grocery store and say, Peter, I have milk and sugar and mm. eggs right now. What can I bring? And we will, you know, we will say yes. Uh, so it is a joy that we can all take part in really raising kids. There's almost a million kids here in, in the foster care in mm-hmm. our country. That is our job. It's our role to all do something to help our little ones. One child at a time. We can't help them all, but mm-hmm. do what you can do. And along the way, we'll change the world and our kids especially. I love what you said about like, don't call and ask me what I need. Just show up with stuff, yes. right? Just show up with whatever gift God's given you, whatever you have to bring. Show up with it and be willing to participate. Yes. That's awesome. Okay, call me Captain Obvious, but 
Winning is everything in America. Hmm. Sports shines a blinding light on just how much we value winning in America. But once in a while, the truth breaks through and there's, and we find that there's something way more important than wins and losses. So, Ben, you'll appreciate this. Auburn football mm-hmm. having a rough year this year. They are. They're in the toughest football conference in the nation, the SEC. Yep. They're three wins, six losses, one in five in the SEC. Ouch. And a week ago, they fired their head coach mm-hmm. and hired as interim coach former Auburn Tigers and NFL running back Cadillac Williams. Mm. And Cadillac almost got him a win on Saturday against Mississippi State. Mississippi State had a 24-3 lead in the first half, but their offense stalled, and Auburn rallied back to take the lead two different times in the final five minutes. Ultimately, Mississippi State got the win in overtime. Okay, all that to say, we're not talking about sports here mainly. We're talking about identity. Mm -hmm. And here's what Cadillac Williams said right out the gate at the press conference you know, right after the game. We lost, but it's so many, so many, so many life lessons. So many life lessons that these kids going to uh, learn from. I mean, just last night, I mean, we we had a uh, chapel. It's like eight guys gave their life to Christ. Like, I mean, like I told them guys last night, man, we 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 can't lose no matter what happens tomorrow. So I'm proud of those guys. Truly proud of them. I think that's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. You know, this guy gets it. I mean, I love to win. I want Michigan to win. Absolutely. And, but, you know, it's so easy for me to get my identity from my team winning. I admit, I was telling the Lord this on Saturday. Lord, I care way too much about Michigan football. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's more than football for me sometimes. It's me getting some of my identity from my team if they win and if my team performs well, if I perform well, I feel good about myself. If not, I don't. And that's why I keep coming back to the only place you can find a rock solid identity. And that's being loved perfectly apart from my performance by Jesus. Mm-hmm. You know, organized sports is so good, Perry, for life lessons. Yeah. And you've played organized sports up to the college level. I have not, but Organized sports can teach so many lessons to young men, especially at the high school level with great coaching staffs that we have here. Life lessons aplenty to be taught in organized sports. And women as well. Men and women. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I can be a complete loser, but if I know that Jesus Christ loves me as I am, apart from my performance, that lifts my heart to the skies. Mm -hmm. And for this performer... Patting my chest here for this achiever. I have to keep coming back to that every single day. Not about winning and losing. It's about being loved by Jesus. Yeah. I love how boldly, you know, this, this new coach proclaimed, what's his name again? His name is Cadillac Williams. That's, that's a nickname. I think it's Cardell Williams, but that's what they call him. He go by. Yeah. That's sweet. I just love, I love his, um, you know, big picture view on things. He's saying, you know what? Yeah, there's a game and yeah, there's a loss, but it's men. (laughs) Their eternity just changed. Like there's no win bigger than this win. This is, this is all of eternity. Eight guys who gave their life to Jesus. That's just, that's awesome. And a billion years from now, 
those eight guys aren't going to be thinking about that game. Right. No. They might be playing the game, though. Sure. Because I think there may be football in heaven, but it just reminds me, too, of, you know, when I was in fifth grade, I I got cut from the Little League team. The coach told me, you're on the team. And then he saw somebody else who was on the team the year before, and he had accidentally cut that guy. And so he called that guy back and said, you're going to have, Perry, you're going to have to go back to the minors. And I went home crying, and my mm-hmm. dad was in the backyard. I said, Dad, I got cut. And he said, Perry, there's one team you'll never get cut from, mm. and that's God's team. It's it's really the same message, mm-hmm. right? And Auburn is a public university. That's not a private school, not a Christian school or a Catholic school. That's a public university. That's pretty awesome. They're at a public university. That they're having chapel yeah. before their games. Yeah, yeah, pretty sweet. And we've got eight new brothers in Jesus. Come on, the Lord not moving. ever wake up in the morning and your very first thought is, oh man, I did not get enough sleep. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And before you even get out of bed, you already feel like you're behind. Or maybe you did get a great night's sleep. You just happened to sleep longer than what you should have. And now you're waking up late and you're like, oh man, I don't have enough time. It's just this, this scarcity mentality, this not enough way of thinking before you're even out of bed in the morning, you feel like you're behind and it feels like it's just, you know, screaming at you, you don't have what you need. And it creates this panic in us, you know, whether it's not enough time, not enough education, not enough followers, not enough money, not enough, I don't know, you fill in the blank, whatever it is for you. It's just the whole proverbial glass half empty. Welcome to my waking up world. Is it? I'm so sorry. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much every day I wake up and I think, oh, I got so much to do today. And Mm. of course, you know, you just can't let your thoughts rule you. And so you got to, I have to start speaking the truth to myself right, right out the gate in the morning. And I have a a rhythm of doing that. But those Mm. first thoughts are just like, wow, my plate is so full Mm -hmm. and, and, I got to, I got to accomplish. I got to achieve. I got to, I got to get the verdict today that I'm okay. Yeah. You know, it's on me to, to, you know, perform and get my identity and man, you're just bringing up a, you're, you're opening up a can of worms can here, of worms. But, but no, I mean, it, I have to reset every morning mm-hmm. into a t- spirit way of thinking. Yeah. That's the challenge when you wake up and all the thoughts are negative and all the thoughts are, ah, I'm behind. I don't have enough. You know, I can't think about not having enough and not think of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I need to reset. The thinking is not to think about what you don't have or what you lack, but to focus instead on what you do have. There's a story in the Bible. The disciples were out at a remote place. It's a story that actually happened, by the way. And there were a bunch of people that had gathered. They all wanted to hear Jesus speak. And, you know, he must have been amazing. And it went long and whatever the case may be. These people were all gathered there and they needed food. And the disciples did not have food to feed all these people. And the people did not have food to feed themselves. And it was a real issue. And so kind of panicked, kind of like, ah, scarcity mentality. We don't have enough. The disciples go to Jesus and they're like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? How are we going to feed all these people? You know, and, and we can't send them away because if we do, they don't even have enough nourishment to, to get them to where they can get more food. They're going to collapse along the way. And Jesus says, well, just go ahead and feed them then. 
And the disciples are like, feed them what? We don't have enough. Jesus, you're not getting it. There's not enough here. And Jesus, you know, he turns the whole thing around, right? He says, what do you have? I don't want to hear about what you don't have. Tell me what you do have. And then they brought what they had to Jesus. It was small. It was limited. It was by far not enough to feed thousands of people. But Jesus gave thanks to God for it. He, he broke it and he gave it to the disciples and he told them to go ahead and feed everyone with this itty bitty little not enough. He said, go ahead and feed everybody. So fast forward, turns out there was leftovers, y'all. There was so much food. They fed everybody. Everybody was satisfied, scripture says. They ate till they were full and there was leftovers. I'm thinking about how I start my day. You know, another tool to reset my thinking is, Lord, I don't, I don't have enough for today Mm -hmm. on my own. It's okay. I don't have enough, but you do. I have what you've given me and I'm going to give it to you and I'm just going to take the next step and and I believe you're going to come through for me. I think that might be a better way for me to start my day. (laughs) The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I need. I lack nothing. So instead of seeing the glass half empty, which could be a reality for you, See the glasses half full because that is also a reality. So let's follow Jesus' example and start with what we have and thank God for that. I think if we start there, just might witness a miracle today. Thanks so much for listening. Questions or comments? Text us at 800-968-8930. That's 800-968-8930.